there. You're listening to the Grace in Real Time podcast. I'm your host, Paula Mazza, and together with my producer and husband, Jamie, we're exploring conversations about mental health, faith, and the importance of presenting our most honest and authentic selves when it comes to life in community. No tidy bows here, just real talk about real life in real time. This conversation is ongoing, and we are so glad you have chosen to be a part of it. So take a deep breath, settle in, and enjoy today's episode of Grace in Real Time. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Paula. How's it going? It's going great. How you doing? <laughs> I think um, December just kind of smacked us upside the head, huh? Yeah, I'm pretty disturbed that it's December already. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Why is that disturbing to you? <laughs> that's, a, that's a curious choice of words there, Jamie. Time is just flying by so quickly. It's disturbing to me. Yeah. It's disturbing me. <laughs> I think there's a part of it that both of us turned 50 in, uh, oh, next month. It's December now, so uh, next exactly month. Exactly one month I will turn 50, yes. Yeah, and time is seems to be speeding up, not slowing down. Well, you've got a great interview, a very special interview lined up for this yeah. time around. Yeah, this is a, a someone who's very dear to my heart. Her name is Dr. Deb Monkowskis, and she started out as one of my professors. And over time, we've become great friends and colleagues and partners, and she's become a tremendous mentor for me. And over the next 30, 40 minutes, you will hear her share her story. And there's some there's some stuff in there, huh? Yeah, some difficult things that Deb went through in her life, and she's pretty open about sharing that. And I think that it's it's a great listen from the sense of she's sharing from her heart, and she's talking about how it has shaped her story and how God has redeemed it. Yeah, she shares a very complex childhood uh, growing up situation, and then has this tremendous story of restoration since what God has been up to ever since that, and how that has shaped her passions today. We have a discussion around social media tucked in there, and we get to hear some of her words of wisdom to ministry leaders and to fellow grandparents out there. Yeah, it's a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to it. All right, well, let's get into it, shall we? listeners a little bit about you. Who are you? Dr. Deb Monkowski. Yes, yes, yes. So just family background. I am a mom of two sons who are both married to wonderful women. And I have four grandkids, three granddaughters and one grandson. One of my sons lives in Illinois and my other son lives here in San Diego with me. I've been married to my husband for 47 years now. Makes me feel like really old, like 47 <laughs> years. So that's, you know, family life. Uh, we live here in Encinitas, California. I am a children and family pastor. 
I've been with my church for almost 35 years now, serving. Um, I'm loving. I love what I do. I love what I that I serve with kids and uh, families, and I teach teachers how to teach and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. So that's my church life. And then I also am a professor at Bethel Seminary. I've been doing that for 17 years now, and I teach in the Master's in Children and Family Ministry degree program. And I'm a strengths finder coach. So I'm coaching people in their strengths, how to live fully into their forming and God's forming in them. And uh, every time I do this, I feel like I'm spinning tons of plates. Right. Um, <laughs> and this hat. <laughs> so and then I also, in partnership with INCM, I lead what's called the Engage program. Uh, and we have two certificate programs now, one in children's ministry and one in family ministry. And those are nine-month programs that we help give a good foundation from which to lead and serve uh, in ministry in their various ministry contexts. Yeah. And I just know from personal experience that that is a very, very sound training program. So anyone out there in children's ministry that's looking for some additional training, the Engage Certificate Program is a fantastic way to do that. I think so. (laughs) We think so. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Well, and I have to tell our listeners that Deb and I first got to know each other when I was a student in the Children and Family Ministries Master's Program. And so I know Dr. Deb as one of my professors, but then also over the years, she has become just one of my wise, wise, wise mentors and a dear friend. And we live pretty much walking distance from each other. Right. So we We met at a school based in Minnesota, but she's on my walking route. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Fantastic. Well, tell us a little bit about your family of origin and give our listeners a little glimpse of what maybe life was like for you as a preteen. Yeah, well, I certainly have an interesting preteen story uh, just in my family of origin. I'm the oldest of seven kids. My mom was married four times. I am the product of the second husband. And then my other siblings are products of the third and fourth husband. Okay. Uh, So yeah, so a lot of kind of chaos and broken relationships and Mm. welfare and, you know, all that goes along with being a large family and broken marriages. So is that here in San Diego? Yes, it is. Okay. I went to OB Elementary. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah. And then moved to Claremont area. So yeah, so local. So that's kind of the big picture of that. Um, My mom did not make great choices in the men she chose. And we see that often kind of in families, they keep making the same mistake over and over again. So she pretty much married abusive kind of men. The third husband was uh, an alcoholic and the fourth husband was an abuser. So he abused all the girls in our family. So that was that was that history. And yeah. that all happened to me like during my preteen years. So wow. from about third through sixth grade for me, being the oldest. Yeah. And, uh, and little did I know, you know, he just was working his way down. Yeah. So that was my preteen years. Pretty chaotic. Uh, I didn't have a lot of people in my life that I could trust or share with. It was really a, a, a secret of mine. I didn't ever tell anyone. But when I think back, you know, it was a pretty lonely, scary time in my life. And I just felt like there was no one there that stood up for me. So even my own mom, right? Yeah. Recognizing that those are wildly formative years. Yes. How that shaped your perspective of adults. Yes. Yes. The very ones that should be caring for us and, and speaking for us and helping us navigate hard things yes. are the ones that are causing the hard things. 
And I even also thought of this just in my own uh, faith development. My relationship with God as father Mm -hmm. was a real difficult one for me because I did not have a good example of what father was. Mm. And to so think about God as father was like, you know, like, I'm not sure I get that one. Right. Yeah, at all. Right. And there are some people that, you know, you think about a father who would sacrifice his own son. Yeah. It sounds abusive. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, I can imagine how that would call into question. So that makes me wonder, when were you first introduced to Jesus? When, when did, you know, what are your earliest memories yeah, of church? It was when we moved to Claremont, my mom had just gotten a divorce from three. Uh, and then when that happened, he was Catholic. So at that point, they sent us to Catholic church. And I always remember it was just a funny thing. They would drop us off so they could have the morning free mm-hmm. with no kids. Mm-hmm. So me and my four siblings were dropped off at Catholic church, and then we would walk home after it was done. Oh, interesting. So no involvement of the parents, but he definitely was Catholic, and that's where that came from. Then when she divorced him, she went kind of back to her roots Um, And she started going to church at a Christian Missionary Alliance church. So we started going to church then. Uh, I didn't become a Christian till I was going into 10th grade. So let me make sure I understand this correctly. So you were going to church as a preteen while at the same time being abused at home. Oh, yeah. And they went to church. So the abuser and my mom went Mm. to church. He was asked to be a deacon in the church. I mean, it was just like, I think back now, I'm like, this was so crazy. Yeah. You know, this was such a crazy thing. You know, you think about church putting people into leadership who are not whole and healthy. Right. We got to do a better job at that. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. yeah. So they went to church and, you know, my mom sang in the choir and he was kind of leadership. But yeah, I went to church. So I knew who God was during that time. And it wasn't until I became a Christian at our Indian Hills camp. Oh, yes. With Indian yes. Hills. Uh-huh. And it was really this moment where there was a band playing. So it was an evening at camping. And that's when it was family camping. So we were camping there. It wasn't like a kid's camp. It was family camping. And there was a band there that played. And like my church, everyone was, wasn't very cool. And as a ninth <laughs> grader, like, you know, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm looking for cool, right? Yeah, sure. So we get there and there's this band playing. And they were just really, I mean, they were cute. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. They, they sing so. It helps. <laughs> yeah, they did. They sang songs though that I knew because I was in the church at that point. So I, these were songs that we sang at church. And I just remember listening to this band playing and watching them play at this camp and just flooded with tears. Like mm. all of a sudden God became real to me yeah. and I want that for myself. Yeah. Um, and it was at that camp that I then, that was going into 10th grade the summer before I went into 10th grade. And reality was I kind of sat on it for a while. Sure. I became a Christian, but I still had my church friends and my school friends. Mm-hmm. And I kind of lived this double life. And it wasn't really till my senior year in high school that I got involved with Young Life and really cemented my relationship with Christ. And, and my trajectory was very different from that point on. Wow. So that's kind of my journey, my faith journey. You know, yeah. How that went. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I wonder the season of abuse was from mm-hmm. third grade to sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And then in ninth grade, Jesus got real mm-hmm. for you. I mean, you know, for yeah. you, from your from your experience. So I wonder from sixth grade to ninth grade, what was, where, kind of where were you at I, there? I was still very a lonely and isolated person, at least far as family stuff goes. Mm-hmm. My parents really didn't, they didn't encourage me to do anything, be anything. I didn't care where I was at night. 
you know, I, I always will say I felt like I raised myself. Mm. Um, there was no guidance. I think, you know, part of my mom just had her own issues, right? Sure. I mean, she stayed married to this guy until she died. So that was going on. And right. uh, those years, I just, you know, I, inve- I invested in school. I was always really a good student. Mm. And I think kids of abuse often play out their life very differently. So my brothers and sisters, you know, it was more sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sure. Uh, and I was the good one, right? Yeah. So that's just how I chose to deal with the stuff. Do you think part of that was being the oldest? Part of it is, yeah, this kind yeah. of responsible piece. You know, I really spent my, pretty much most of my life watching my brothers and sisters. We did really pretty much all the housework. Mm. That was just kind of how things were. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I was, I was kind of a second mom to my siblings and I did good at school. I always did my homework, got good grades, you know, and, and that was how I got in a sense acceptance. Yeah. It's probably stuff that you could control too. Yeah. It's not like I got accolades from my parents because, again, they were <laughs> right, very disconnected. Right, we look right. at family kind of structures and it was a very disconnected family. But that's how I chose to respond. I have siblings that really chose more of the rebellion half. Uh, it just wasn't the one I chose. And I'm right. Yeah, I just kind of wonder why. And you're quite familiar with mental illness. Yes. From from an early age. Yes, I am. My two youngest brothers, and they're both the children of this last husband. They both are schizophrenic and they both were diagnosed as elementary school kids. Wow. So pretty much all of when I was, again, I'm the oldest, so 11 and 13 years older than these two. Okay. So as they're getting into the age of diagnosis, I'm almost out of the home because once I went away to college, I never came home again. Of course. That was just my journey. Yeah. But yeah, so they, they've been on, you know, SSI um, all their life, social security, you know, they've never really held jobs at all. And I would say my two brothers were very different in their, their, their diagnosis. If you read it on paper, it looked exactly the same. They heard voices that to kill people. And Mm. so pretty ugly, dark stuff. But they acted out very differently. So it was always just weird. One was more dark and the other one was, I would say, I always said like more goofy. Okay. It was weird. But reading their diagnoses, you kind of go like, wow, it's the same kid, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting how things that seem like you have this textbook characteristics of mental illness, but then when you put that in mixed in with personality, circumstances, different wirings, you know, ages, yeah, you know, it's like, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Expressing and and perhaps, things. you know, the younger one who was the more goofy one sees the older one, right? And it's mm. like, oh, I don't think I want to do that. But, you know, right. I'm yeah. going to, much like I say, you know, I responded to those years of abuse in a different way than my brothers and sisters responded to it. Sure. So I think that could be the case with the younger seeing the older. My mom tended to coddle them quite mm. a bit. Assumptions that they couldn't do anything on their own. And therefore, I need to do everything for them. Yeah. So not not a real healthy way to parent right. or speak strength and truth uh, into these people, make sure they're getting the help that they need. None of that stuff really happened. Okay, that was my next question is, yeah. is therapy ever a point of, you know, was ever a part of the picture I here? I think therapy was. I know my younger brother did drugs for a while. He did prescribed drugs. My, my older brother did. My, the also other known one as did. medication. <laughs> yeah, but, there we go. There we go. <laughs> The other other one probably did the other kind, but um, the younger one, but he didn't like how they made him feel. And so he would stop taking them. So, and then when he would stop taking them, he would get to these places where he would call 911 and say, I'm, you know, flipping out. And they'd come pick him up and take him to the hospital. And then he would call and go, hey, I'm at the hospital. You want to come visit me? 
mean, it was just this weird, so almost attention getting it felt like, you know, when it was happening. But yeah, I don't think the older of the two, I don't think he ever did medication at all. Mm. Just very sheltered. And my mom made sure they got their checks and she pretty much kept their checks and they lived at home mostly until after she died. So she really kind of managed them. Now I'm I'm going to cut to the chase and then I'm, we're going to go back again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I have known you long enough for us to have had some pretty honest conversations to really, you know, really talk real about stuff. And I know you as somebody who's very grounded, who's very centered, who is joyful, mm-hmm. who, you know, who is, who is genuinely, um, you're not wearing masks. You mm-hmm. just, you are who you are and it's beautiful. Yeah. And so I wonder what has happened How did you to get, get there? from there to here? Yeah. Because I mean, you are an incredible individual and anybody who knows you yeah. themselves would agree. I, I know it. You know, statistics say I should be pretty racked up. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what statistics say. It should be a hot mess. Yeah. Um, there's certainly over the years, there's been, I mean, I did go to counseling for a while as an adult. I always really say, oh, by the grace of God. I mean, that's, that's one of the ways I explain it. I had a vision always that I'm walking down a road and these hands are around me. And I just said, these are the hands of God that are around me as I'm walking down this road. And this road was not smooth. There was, it was roads and dips and puddles, and it was just not a good road. But these hands were there around me to guide me through the junk. And I just felt like that's the hand of God that was with me as I went. I, as I said earlier, I'm a strengths coach. So I always find it interesting that my very number one, and I look at strengths as kind of God's forming, God's natural forming in us. And my number one strength is positivity. <laughs> and I just like, how can that be? Right. To someone who experienced so much trauma as a youth, how can that be? And I just think that's really part of my forming God's gift to me, that I can see the junk mm-hmm. in a different light. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the only thing I can hold on to. Did I, you know, certainly there were people along the way that believed in me. It was interesting. My fifth grade teacher was amazing. I never talked to her about what was going on at home. We never talked about that. But for some reason, she invited me to stay after school with her every day. I helped her grade papers. She'd drive me home. We'd stop and get an ice cream cone. I mean, this Mm. woman, I keep thinking, did she know something was going on? You know, I don't know. We never talked about it. But she loved me and she spoke value into me. Mm. And that, that was a significant person in my life. Yeah. Um, And then later when I started going to church, you know, people there that kind of believed in me and spoke God's truth into me and said, you're okay again, but no one knew. Right. (laughs) But it was those people that I would probably, you know, kind of held on to. It's like, here is someone who says you have value, you have worth. God loves you. You know, I look back at those significant people in my life. It wasn't my family. And I'm sad. I'm sad about that, that it wasn't my family. But I did have other people that spoke that truth into me. I think, you know, kind of in my own personal journey, I teach a class and you know, you're in this class, but you know, I say, remember those people who have spoke God's word into you, have spoke value and truth and life and hope. And I said, be that person in the life of someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I try to do. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have personal experience. You have absolutely been (laughs) that person for me in in many ways, many of these honest conversations we've had. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit about your journey towards children's ministry. How did that happen? 
Yeah. And I think, you know, I said those early influences from some teachers of mine. I really had meant to be a school teacher. Hmm. That was kind of where I was going when I first went, even went to college, I was going to be a school teacher. So I knew I loved working with kids. I think I, I, I've always wanted to be a voice for the voiceless. I wanted to be someone who could speak for children. Uh, I thought that was going to be in the school system, public school system. Uh, I went to Azusa Pacific University, got my degree there. And along the way, I met my husband at Simpson Bible College in San Francisco. We got married a year and six days after we met. Uh, and then he was going to Fuller Seminary. So we moved down to Pasadena. And so from Pasadena, the closest university for me to continue on, because I'd only done one year of college at that point, was Azusa Pacific. So that's where I went to school. So when I'm kind of in that process with Azusa, my husband now, who was also funny, he was going to be also a professor. He, he went to Fuller to be a college professor. But then <laughs> he got called into full-time ministry and he was a college pastor. And at that point, kind of my trajectory changed too. So mm. he was going into ministry. I started working with him in ministry. I didn't really have a specific calling at that point. But we kind of moved from the educational world to ministry in, in churches. So that's kind of where that started. Mm. The interesting thing I found now, my husband right now is part-time um, associate professor at Point Loma Nazarene University. Mm. I'm teaching at Bethel Seminary. And I said, isn't that amazing? And I go, isn't this how God is just surprises you? Both of us who are kind of headed into this educational path, both of us moving to ministry path, and both of us now are also in this original dream, right? right? This is original <laughs> hope. So uh, that's kind of that direction. I started in, in ministry at, well, you know, I always kind of like, I worked in the nursery, you know, when I had kids, I did that kind of typical yeah, mom sure, thing, right? Sure. And then uh, I got called, my husband and I had moved to LA area and we got called from my old pastor at Mount Soledad. And uh, he said, hey, I have this position. I think you'd be perfect for it. Would you consider coming back for this? We, at that point, were able to drop everything and come back and we moved down to San Diego. And at first I did part-time children's men. I was the associate to the director and I did the books. I did the financial books for the church. At that point, they had all just paper books. My job was to put everything on the computer. It's like so data I, entry, yeah, basically. I set up the electronic <laughs> books for the church. And we really found at that point that it was taking all my time. I didn't really have any time for the other piece. And so eventually I kind of went full-time just in doing the business admin and let go of that other piece. In the meantime, the person who was leading, she was asked to leave. And um, so they had a hole again. My husband took it over for about a year, but he kept going like, this was temporary. You know, I don't <laughs> want to keep doing this, but I know who should be. So wow. then they asked me to do it. And so for a while I did both business admin and children's men. And I love my story when I really was assured of my call. I got up, you know, do our annual report and you get up and the business people get up and say, here's the balance sheet and here's our budget. <laughs> and so I can do that. I'm capable and I'm competent in that stuff. So I got up and shared all that stuff in this annual report. And then I got up and talked about kids, men. And when I did, I was just, I stood on stage. And I just remember the feeling I'm flooded with joy. It's like, <gasps> I could just feel my whole body. And I just like, and I shared about what God was doing with kids at the church. I was like, ah, this was so amazing. And I went, sat back down in my seat and I said, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, so we had a little transition time where I stepped out and then the person they had hired didn't work out. So I had to step back in. So I had a couple false starts, but eventually went full-time into Kidsman. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And then how did that turn into teaching at Bethel? Bethel. 
Yeah, I got my master's degree in the same program, Paula, that, that you got your master's in. And I see my master's and it was like just even the next year. Well, now, wait a second. Yeah. We can't just gloss that over without saying you hold a very special position yes. in that. Yeah, I'm the very first graduate of the master's in children and family ministry degree from Bethel Seminary. Because I'm a little overachiever <laughs> and I took a class ahead of my cohort, uh, I took it in San Diego, uh, which you know, I live here, so why not? Right. <laughs> and uh, so when we graduated, my cohort graduated, they had one more class to take in the summer. And I that was the class I had already taken. So at graduation, I was the only one to get my official diploma at graduation. Literally the first Lit- person ever of the first yes. cohort ever. Yes. First cohort A. <laughs> cohort A. First graduate. Yeah. <laughs> so, fun. and it was just a year later, um, I was invited to kind of co-teach a class and I did that. And then the year after that, that co-person stepped out and I took her class fully. Nice. And, you know, been doing that now. I've been teaching it for 17 years, which, wow. yeah, time has really flown. And I, we do have the privilege of calling you Dr. Deb. Do you want to talk a little bit yes, about that? Yes, Dr. Deb. Yeah. Really, I had no intention of getting a master's degree. I don't know if that was your saying, <laughs> yes. Paula. Because no one was telling me, Deb, get a master's, right? But it kept coming across my desk and I kept going like, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, I could do that, right? So I got the master's degree. And then at the end of my master's degree, one of my professors said to me, she goes, you know, Deb, you should get your doctorate, which is really funny. It's the same professor that I ended up taking her class, which oh, was funny. kind of interesting. But And I'm going... I just want to be done. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to get another degree this now. a lot. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm finished. And and again, I had, no one was saying, get this degree. We'd really like you to get your doctorate. But then this degree kept coming across my desk, and it was a partnership between Bethel Seminary and Gallup. And I really already loved the Gallup stuff. And I was already a Gallup strengths coach. And I'm going like, oh, Bethel and Gallup. You know, I always said the sacred and the secular. (laughs) This is so cool. So I decided to step in and get it because it just looks so amazing to me. I ended up, we were the only cohort that ever got to do this degree because that was the only period that Bethel and Gallup had a partnership. So I got my degree in um, our program was called Strengths-Based Congregational Leadership. I did my dissertation on leadership development for 10 to 13 year olds. That's kind of my focus again, because I love kids and I want to see them grow up whole and healthy. Yeah. You know, there's some things that are striking to me. One, you've said you've been married for 47 years. Yes. And I'm thinking of these things in contrast to your upbringing. Yes. So you're in this very stable marriage. Yeah. You've been in children's ministry for... Almost 35 years. Almost 35 years. Yeah. And you have been teaching teachers Mm -hmm. in children's ministry, leading ministry leaders. Yeah. Training, pouring into, discipling for... 17 years, 17 yeah. plus years in a lot of different venues. Yeah. Man, what a story of restoration. Absolutely. And I that is. and I feel that and believe it. Yeah. You know, I always say, oh, by the grace of God, I, you know, it doesn't make sense to me necessarily, you know, right. like, how can this be? Yeah. Um, but incredible. Yeah, God is faithful. Yeah. So standing where you are now and kind of looking out and surveying the land, what are you noticing in terms of kids, families? And mental health. Mm-hmm. What are you, and, and even that dynamic with the church? Like, what are what kinds of things are you noticing? Yeah, I, I think certainly coming out of COVID, we're seeing a lot more issues with kids that are depressed or not engaging well with other people, a little bit on the outside. 
Um, and that's really tough to see. Kids that we had seen before that were really engaged are now, it feels like they're disengaged. And not just with ministry, but with people and friends. And I mean, they haven't been able to hang out with people. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot, you know, that kind of piece. I really think too, social media, because that has been our platform, you know, as we've kind of go th- gone through this last two years, that that's tough on kids. It's tough. So that self-esteem, worth, value, I think that's taken a really hard hit. Talk uh, a little bit more about that. What do you What do you mean by that? Yeah, I just see, you know, you kind of look at social media. It says, I need to look like this. I need to sound like this. Kind of the false self mm-hmm. that people put out. People aren't free to be real, to be truthful, you know, to say it like it is. And we can't keep up that kind of facade, you right, know. Right. So then that leads to isolation. People are going to find out I'm really not like that. Mm-hmm. Um, leads up to isolation, broken friendships. Imposter broken syndrome. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, you know, I, you kind of wish and like we could throw that whole <laughs> social media piece out or at least restrict that greatly in certainly our preteen kids, yeah. um, even the, I would say even through high school, because kids are getting really hit hard with that. Oh, yeah. And, um, and there's evidence. That, that's not just opinion. There's actually absolutely. evidence coming out of studies that have looked at this and said, this is hurting our kids. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, wild. It grieves me. It's funny because I have a love-hate relationship as an adult with social media. Because on one hand, I've been able to connect with people that I otherwise would have no means to, you know, to figure out how do I get in contact with these right. people and even family members. And so there's that part of it that's really fun and getting glimpses into, you know, people's lives and, and connecting and, and that way. So there's like, there's a treasure there, but then there's also this harm that you think of so how much of social media is based in marketing. You don't realize how yeah. much of that is algorithms trying to get you to need something more so yeah. that you can, you know, participate more. And again, that's research. You'll, there's plenty of Absolutely. studies out there showing that. And if a marketing, if someone's marketing something, what's the number one place they're going to go to, to try to get yeah. people to buy? They're going to go to kids, yeah. right? It's a, yeah. it's a key strategic. And even Facebook, there was that whole article on the Wall Street Journal on their podcast talking, I think there's like six or seven episodes talking about Facebook and Instagram and some of the things that have been uncovered behind that. And that's kind of, you know, yeah. it's, it seems, it seems things to be aware of. And the things too, with our young, our young folk is they don't have the tools or the mm-hmm. filters to filter out the lie. Mm-hmm. And so they just start wearing all this stuff that's not true about right. them, about the world, about their friends, about the people they go to school with. They just don't know how to filter that out. You and I can say, oh, that's not true. Like I went through, I really wanted as a connection piece, like you just said, with people. And I just found when people were getting political and being ugly online, mm-hmm. I just started hiding them. I like, I'm yeah. not, that's not what I want. I don't want to listen to that. Right. I, I don't know that kids yet um, at the preteen age have the wisdom to know what's harming them on social media. Well, and especially if we don't know who we are yet. And I would say the same is true for adults. If we're still struggling with our own identity, which preteens definitely are. I mean, what do they say at Fuller (laughs) Youth Institute? They say, you know, the the kids are navigating those three main questions about identity. Who am I? Where do I belong? And do I matter? Yeah. And if they're getting information from social media. Yeah. It's a (laughs) tough one. Yeah. It's really a tough one. Right. Looking at the whole picture, what choices did you make as an adult 
raising your own kids and now interacting with grandchildren, beautiful grandchildren. Like what kinds of choices did you intentionally make along the way to create a healthier way forward? Yeah, I know we kind of talking about this media piece, and I, which is a big thing for me. My son is in the media business, so uh, he works for a gaming company. So I'm really very uh, heavily aware of that whole system and business. But I found that when my kids were little, I had to really be careful about monitoring what they were watching mm-hmm. and the amount of time they were putting in to their little, uh, whether it was video games. You remember, and back then, video games were tamer. Yes, yes, <laughs> underdeveloped. Are, yes, than they are today. But I remember <laughs> seeing the impact on my kids when they would play games that were more violent. Mm. And I remember there's one point I just said, they're all out. All the violent games, that were there, I'm pulling them all. Because I see it changes you. Mm. I see, you know, at that point, you fight with your brother more because you've just been in this aggressive game. So I remember having to do that to kind of watch what they're watching. I'm saying right now, what I think as parents, as grandparent, you know, it's the amount of screen time our kids are watching, I think is really key. And, you know, you think, especially going through COVID. Right, where it was all screens. We're on screens all the time. And they're they're on screens on there. They're on screens on television. There's computers, games, uh, doing schoolwork in their cars. You know, they have little video Mm -hmm. screens there. And then play dates turned into screens. Yeah. Yeah. I just felt like it's so much screen time. And I I think that can be harmful. And we have to be mindful of that uh, as we're raising our own kids. And certainly like with our grandkids, we don't put the TV on at all. We play games. We go outside. We go for walks. Um, we give them experiences rather than, you know, just pop them in front of a TV or a computer screen or whatever. So we try to be intentional about the amount of screen time our kids are having. I just I just think that for me, that's the biggest hit right now that we have on our yeah. on this generation. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it is this world, right? So we have to help our kids learn how to navigate this and make wise choices. Mm-hmm. So, but we have to be intentional there. And I, I remember talking to some mops moms, you know, and I go like, yeah, but we need to plop them in front of a TV so we can cook dinner. You know, it's <laughs> right. like so crazy, right? You know, and I and I, I get remember that. doing that. I was absolutely, guilty. <laughs> absolutely. And I think you know, I said we all get that, but just be mindful of those times when we don't have to do it because it's a necessity. Just think about how much time you're spending on screens. You know, I I think that's a big part of our teens now, especially in light of seeing what screen time is doing to our kids' sense of value, sense of Mm self-worth, relationally. There's all kinds of things that kind of go into this piece, how we relate with people. If we're only always relating through a screen, I don't know how to see the dimple in your smile (laughs) or the twinkle in your eye. I don't know how to read your expressions because I've spent so much time being relational through a screen. Mm. It's not healthy. Yeah. Well, thinking about the church as a whole and mental health, what do you see there in that dynamic? You know, what is kind of your experience in that relationship of discipleship, the church, community, community building, barriers? I struggle with this a bit because I've really felt in a lot of areas where things are kind of in that gray space Mm. of people's life that we don't always do a great job with that. So, you know, people that are struggling with their mental health or in their relationships or their self-worth, you know, we're just like, hey, God loves you. It's good. You know, we kind of don't want to go deep with people in that space. Right. And I just keep saying we need to do a better job of that as a body of Christ. 
I mean, certainly Jesus did, right? Yeah. He's seen these people in really, really broken spaces and go like, hey, I see you. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to do a more of that, I see you. Mm-hmm. And how do I help you? How do I come alongside of you in this messy place? Right. I think very often we don't want to go in the messy place. Or we are afraid to go in if we don't know how to fix it. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes it's the intention isn't to fix it. It's just to sit yeah. with them. In the mess. With each other. Yeah. yeah. In the mess. Absolutely. We have a lot of ministry leaders listening to this podcast, Mm. and I wonder what words of wisdom you would have for them, especially children's ministry leaders, and especially those who lead preteens. What kind of advice would you give to them? Yeah, I would would say one that there's a couple things that that I would say that are important here. One is that we make sure the kids, that we know them. And not just that they're a face that walks in and we say hi, but that we know them. We know their likes, their dislikes, you know, their fam, who's their family, making sure we're taking time to really get to know who they are. I mean, certainly in this kind of crazy, busy world, both parents are working. I mean, we don't know what's going on there and and how well these kids feel connected in their homes, right? So we can be, just like in my situation, the other adults in my life who are able to come alongside me when my home life was a mess, but nobody knew it right Mm -hmm. so I look back at those people that really spoke that so I always say that piece of I see you and I'm really trying to understand I want to get to know you better Um, and sometimes that's really hard to do if you have you know four or five hundred kids you know coming there on any given night it's hard for people to be known and I just think at that point we're talking to our leaders and say our kids need to be known Mm -hmm. they need to know there's somebody else in here that will speak God's love their value their worth tell them that they are somebody yeah and they were created on purpose with a purpose we need to be those people in the life of the kids I've heard you say that several times that we were created on purpose for a purpose and how important, I just heard you say also how important it is to not just have that posture yourself as a ministry leader, but if you're training a team of volunteers, how important it is to train not so much the program piece, but the posture going into that program and having a posture of, I see you, I know you, you know, I love you. I'm Mm -hmm. so glad you're here because, and I'm a firm believer in this, the more that kids experience that from the church, the more they understand that Jesus sees them and Jesus loves them. And he's always excited to spend time with them. I always tell my teachers, you know, so often these kids that we pour into and we teach them every week, that so often 10 years from now, they're not going to remember what you taught them, but they're going to remember you that you loved them. And that's what we need to make sure we're doing, that the kids know that this is a person who really cared about me, invested in me, you know, let me have, you know, gain self-worth and self-confidence because they believed in me. Uh, we need to be those people in the lives of our kids. The other piece that I think is really important as leaders is that we start speaking into them the worth we see. Mm. So we start helping them believe what we see in them. And they don't necessarily know that until we speak those words. If you remember, there's a thing we did at Bethel Seminary, a paper we do, and we we talk about, think back over your lifetime, the words that were spoken into you. And it's really interesting. You'll have people remembering conversations from 30, 40 years ago of people who said positive, encouraging, self-worth building uh, comments to these people. And you can remember those like it was yesterday. 
Those are significant pieces. And we need to be those kinds of people in the life of our kids. And we can't do that if we're, I always say, we can't do that if we're sitting in our office, you know, while ministry's going on, right? So we need to be out and about and investing and speaking what we see. Wow, you were such a good friend to him. Wow, I really loved how you explained the directions to that game. You know, that really shows some leadership in you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we start speaking what we see and pretty soon people speak it enough, they start to believe it about them. Deb, I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank Mm -hmm. you for having me. Wow. Some really great nuggets of wisdom there in that conversation. Absolutely. It felt a little bit like a fire hose of wisdom. So what stood out to you? Oh, well, I mean, we just landed on this note of how important it is to know the kids. This is something I'm very passionate about about and the ministries that I get to oversee and train for. Having kids coming in feeling like they are seen and known and loved is a powerful, powerful expression of Christ and a powerful expression of what it means to be the church. So I loved her words around that. And I especially loved this invitation that she gave to ministry leaders and really anybody who's involved with kids, um, whether you're a parent, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, a friend, a neighbor, or uh, somebody who's a coach or a ministry leader, how important it is to speak truth into kids and especially truths that maybe they don't see yet. I remember voices in my life growing up teachers and mentors and friends who over the course of time have called things out of me that I didn't see, but then lived into. And even to this day, I have a group of three other ladies that I've been praying with for over a decade, maybe maybe even closer to two decades in different forms, who are constantly listening on my behalf and speaking truth into me as they feel God is leading them to do that. And I just think that's such a powerful practice and something for our listeners to be mindful of when they're engaging with kids. Is there any kind of voices like that that you remember from your childhood? Oh, for sure. I think one that really stands out to me is my fifth grade teacher who told me that I was a leader and kind of helped me learn to use those leadership skills for good. (laughs) He taught me what the word click meant and how to be more focused on welcoming, creating spaces that are more inclusive and not exclusive. There's a teacher in high school who told me that I was going to be a teacher when I grew up, and I had no intention of being a teacher. And yet, just about everything I've had my hands in as an adult has been some form of teaching, which is really interesting, I think. How about you? Yeah, well, I can remember a couple of people, especially, I mean, early on, I think I was in high school, but maybe early high school, a pastor's wife saw some interest in music and invited me to basically run the soundboard for church. So that was kind of fun because, you know, she said, I want you to run the board. I want you to play the music. I want you to learn how to use this thing. And it's really something that I'm really passionate about and interested in doing now as an adult. Well, and here's something that our listeners may or may not realize, but Jamie produces this whole show. So I get to show up and 
talk <laughs> but and share my heart. But Jamie is the one who then takes it and makes all the edits and puts it all together and puts the different pieces together. And I mean, he spends hours and hours and hours combing through the content and putting it together into this beautiful little podcast that we're doing. And um, it really is a gifting of his. And um, it's something that I had wanted to highlight today anyhow. So thank you so much for leading me into that. It's really fun to hear how God started shaping that early on in your life. I love it. Yeah. So another person I can think of is a coach that I had in high school. Uh, his name's Peter Locke. He just became, he was also my English teacher, but he became a friend of mine. He would drive me to and from practice on some occasions. He was my baseball coach, and he really saw something in me as a freshman and invited me to play on the varsity baseball team. So he really spoke into me at that time, and we had a lot of great conversations in those drives from school to my house because it wasn't just around the corner. It was, it was about a 20, 25-minute drive sometimes. So you know, we had some great conversations around that, and I've had a couple of coaches like that in high school who really kind of spoke into me and saw a leader in me. And as Deb was talking about, you know, speaking into kids, their worth or self-worth, helping them create some kind of self-worth that they can carry on into their adult life. It's really important. And I've had a couple of examples in my life that have helped shape me. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that, Jamie. Well, for the sake of our listeners, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Engage Certificate Program that Deb is very much a part of. And for those of you that are interested in learning more about children's ministries that have a heart for families and really um, want some good quality training, go on to my website and I'll have a link there that will guide you towards finding out more information about this certificate training program. Well, that's a wrap for this month's Grace in Real Time. We're heading into the holidays here. In fact, Thanksgiving is behind us and now right in the middle of Hanukkah and on our way to Christmas. So I just want to remind our listeners to go easy on yourselves this season. Keep it real and be kind to yourself. And remember that grace abounds everywhere. You just have to stop and take a breath and look around. Do you like what you're hearing? Well, then go on to Spotify or iTunes, Apple Music, and give us a follow. Or visit us at preteenmentalhealth.com, sign up for our newsletter, and don't hesitate to give us some feedback. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back again in the new year. Listening to the Grace in Real Time podcast with your host, Paula Mazza. If you'd like to get in touch with Paula, send an email to Paula at preteenmentalhealth.com. For more information on the Preteen Mental Health Initiative, the Grace in Real Time podcast, and to get connected to mental health resources, please visit our website, preteenmentalhealth.com.